Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Well, I like the informal discussion type of approach. It seems to me that on occasion like this, questions are something of infinitely more value than a lecture or a story. But Rip suggested that I make some remarks here tonight, and I'm only too glad to do that. And coming down on the plane, I got speculating with myself about the early days of AA and about the the meaning of them in terms of the grace of God. Uh, I've read somewhere that if a grain of wheat which has been stored for centuries in a dry place, is exposed to the right soil and the right climate and to enough light from above. It will manifest life and it will unfold and it will grow. But this presupposes the right soil, the right climate, and above all, enough light. Well, I think it's that way with AA. I remember years back when we first began to get publicity, and the first very large occasion was a feature piece done in the Saturday Evening Post, which all at once produced us about 6,000 members. This was in 41, and by then, a number of medics had become close friends, some of them psychiatrists. And these fellows allowed their names to be used a rather audacious step in those days, I assure you. Your names were used in the Post article. I make this point because when later asked to testify on another occasion, they refused to do it. And these were the circumstances. The first gal that got sober in AA is one known to many of you as Marty still very much of a growing concern in the education field. Marty was the most difficult case. God knows we're all complex, but Marty was really a champ. And she had been under the care of a Dr. Foster Kennedy, a man of very wide repute in that time, worldwide renowned, a neurologist. And he watched Marty, as she was planted in the new soil, he watched her receive this life. 
Well, he was tremendously impressed. He came to some meetings, and soon he said to me, Bill, would it be possible to have two or three of the psychiatrists uh, in institutions who have seen recoveries of very grim cases, people that you say are friends of yours and who have testified for you in the post piece, couldn't we get a group of this stuff to come to the Academy of Medicine and explain what they have seen? Well, we thought this was just great, because in those days there were a few friends indeed. So showing by these people, <coughs> by reason of Dr. Kennedy, well, uh, what could be better? So one by one we went to them, and we said, would they come to the academy? And we supposed they would. After all, some of the Kennedy glory could brush off them. You know, they were friends anyhow, and they'd proved it, so why not? And not a one would do it. And when pressed for their reasons for not doing it, each one of them separately said the same thing. In effect, each said, look, Bill, you folks have added up in one column more of the resources which have been separately applied to alcoholics than anyone else. For example, you have this kinship in suffering. You have possibilities of communication that others don't have. You have a crude form of self-examination or analysis and of catharsis. You have uh, a great new outgoing interest. You reduce guilt by restitution. And you have this great compelling interest in helping others. And then there is a religious factor. And then there is this factor of the hopelessness, so far as the resources of the individual are concerned, of this malady. Now, this is a formidable list of forces. But we still can't come to the academy. Well, why not? Well, said they, we see in AA, sometimes in weeks, in a few months, shifts in motivation, that even the sum of these forces couldn't begin to account for, because we all too well understand the difficulties of this problem, this subtle compulsion. And the sum of them won't add up to the speed of these transformations. 
in the, these very grim cases. So for us, there is an unknown factor at work in AA. And among ourselves, being scientists, we call it the X factor. We believe you people call it the grace of God. And who shall go to the academy to explain the grace of God to that body? No one can, and we simply aren't wrong. So, I think it is just as futile as ever for any of us to presume to explain this matter of grace around which our entire galaxy of principles and activities gathered and clusters. We can't do that, but we can examine this matter of the soft and this matter of plants and this matter of illumination which for some reason or other we have made ourselves ready clearly god's grace is in and through all so it might be said why haven't alcoholics sobered many times more often through grace than they have? It's available. Why hasn't religion been more successful, numerically at least? Why hasn't medicine been more successful? How is it that laymen seem to be doing this thing. So I would like to tell a story depicting, at least as it seems to me, what the soil is and what the climate is and what the light is. These things of which we have been placed in such treasured possession. There is no doubt that in an ordinary sense of time, A began in the office of a psychiatrist. And we might be mindful of this when we criticize people in this profession. Of course, for most of us, the origin is 2,000 years old. For some of us, perhaps older. But I'm speaking of the situation in an immediate sense. How was it precipitated, this thing? This, too, is a matter of conjecture. But here's how it seems to me. There was a certain businessman of great attainment. He's cut down by the grog. He runs the gamut of treatments in this country. 
And this would be in the year about 1932, when he was just about at the end of his tether. <coughs> so he went abroad and became a patient of Dr. Carl Jung. And as all of you know, Jung was one of the founding fathers of the art, I prefer that instead of science, of psychiatry. And Jung, Adler, Freud were the three founding fathers. But of these, only Jung seemed to think that man is something more than $2 worth of chemicals, a bundle of instincts, and an uncertain intellect. Jung thought that man had something beyond this, that man had soul. So, our traveler had found a truly great human being. Great indeed, as events fell out. He placed himself under that dear man's tutelage for a whole year, becoming more and more confident that the hidden springs of this baleful compulsion to drink were being understood and removed and cast away. He began to feel more free. There was no drinking while he was under treatment. At the end of the year, he left Carl Jung, and in one month he was tight. <coughs> and the bender was terrific. So, in infinite despair, he came back <coughs> to Carl Jung and said, Is there anything now for me? You were my court of last resort. And this great man said, Roland, I thought for a time after you first came that you might be one of those rare cases in which my art has been helpful. Otherwise, I should not have encouraged you to stay. <coughs> but alas, I'm obliged to conclude that you are not, and that there is nothing that I have to offer you. <coughs> my art has failed you. I need not say that coming from a man of his eminence, this was a statement of beautiful humility. 
and the whole destiny of AA, you and me and all of us, has since hung on that sentence. So then Hazard found that agony was added to despair, and he cried out, but is there nothing else? And this was the answer he got. Rowan, time out of mind, alcoholics have recovered here and there, now and then, through religious experiences spiritual experiences, let us say, or very truly through conversions. A naughty word for us, A's, we don't use it for obvious reasons. But, said the doctor, this benign lightning seldom strikes. And no one can say where or when it will, or for the resuscitation of who. So I simply would advise you to place yourself in a religious atmosphere, remembering the hopelessness of your doing anything about it on your own remaining resources alone and cooperating with your associates and casting yourself upon whatever God there may be. So Roland aligned himself with the Oxford groups of that time, a rather evangelical movement, rather aggressive, very easy it is to criticize. It was non-denominational, however, and it used simple common denominators of religions, simple moral principles. It called upon its members to admit that they could not solve the life problem on their own. It called upon them for self-examination. It called upon them for restitution. It called upon them for a kind of giving in the Franciscan manner, the kind of giving that demands no return in money, power, prestige, and the like. The losing of oneself in the lives of others. Such was the nature of the crowd with which he became associated. Unaccountably to him, the obsession to drink left. And for some years, he had no more trouble. 
At the time in the groups, there were a few alcoholics sober. There is one now at Ann Arbor that goes back to that time. An old friend who never became an AA. Sobered up in the oxygen groups. So Roland returned to America, and the groups here in those days were headed by an Episcopal clergyman called Sam Shoemaker. And in the, his congregation and among the groups were two or three other alcoholics that for the nonce were staying dry. And uh, Hazard had a summer place near Bennington, Vermont. And these friends, one of them son of a local judge, and himself an alcoholic, described the plight of a boy who was a school-time <coughs> chum of Abby Thatcher. And Abby had been deteriorating horribly. They were summer folks in the town above Manchester. Abby had run his car into the side of the farmer's house pushed the wall of the kitchen in. The door was, would still be open to the car. Abby stuck his head out, and to the poor woman cowering in the corner who hadn't been hit, he said, hey, what about a cup of coffee? <laughs> well, the town fathers had had it. They were going to commit Abby for alcoholic insanity. So the judge's son and Hazard picked up the man who was to become my sponsor. Meanwhile, I had gone the route with which you're all familiar. I had sobered up the summer before, scared to death by the verdict of my doctor, Dr. Silkwood the one we have since named the little doctor who loved drunks, and he must have them because in his lifetime he dealt with some 40,000 of them, as a hack doctor in a drying out place. And he had an idea that this thing was an illness, having several components, a spiritual illness, a moral illness, and also a physical illness. And perhaps oversimplifying, he was apt to describe an alcoholic as a person condemned by a compulsion to drink against his own interests, to drink in spite of his perfect willingness to stop, and that this drinking was coupled to an increasing sensitivity of the body, which, if the drinking went on, guaranteed his insanity and one day his death. So this sort of a sentence had been spoken to Lois at long last by my doctor, Dr. Silkfoot. So, you see, the saw uh, was under preparation 
we were beginning to learn a little more about climate. Abby and my other friend Rowan had received a considerable amount of light. Well, I got drunk in about two months, even in spite of this sentence that I would have to be locked up or go nuts, maybe within a year. And then my friend Abby, who had been brought to New York from Vermont, who had unaccountably sobered up for the time being in the Oxford groups, came to visit me. But I, too, was in great despair. Despair is a primary ingredient, indeed, of this sort. In the medical jargon, we might call it deflation at depth, some deflation, huh? So, Abby came to see me, and he pitched at me this list of Moral, you might say, cliches, nothing so new about that. I was in favor of honesty. I was in favor of helping other people. I was in favor of practically everything he had to say, except one thing. I was not in favor of God. For I had received one of these magnificent modern, modern schoolings, scientific schooling that assured that by a series of stages, picking up increments from somewhere, as they went along, I could be traced back to a single piece of ooze in prehistoric seas. And this was my face. And science was my God. <clears throat> so along comes Abby. And along comes you, for whom I had respect. And here was my doctor. Science can't do it. Medicine can't do it. Psychology can't do it. Religion, sometimes. That was the story. But how could I buy religion? <clears throat> so I felt trapped. In other words, I was gripped in the trap which we every day construct for the drunk who approaches us, saying, well, I think the group life must be great. Helping other people, I'm for it. But I couldn't get the spiritual angle, as our jargon Now, as you know, this gentleman is the newcomer, like me, is being caught in this trap. When you and I talk to another alcoholic, and we identify ourselves as having been denizens of this strange world and having emerged, and we describe this malady in the terms 
of our God's science, and that God pronounces the sense of hopelessness on us, the sentence. We are deflated at depth, and then we learn that now we have accepted our personal hopelessness. There still isn't any hope because we cannot go through the God business. And this was the awful dilemma into which I was cast by my friend Abby, bringing on the one side all of this bad news, but on the other side the spectacle of his own release. And that was the word he used. He didn't say he was on the waterway. The obsession had just left him. As soon as he became willing, to try on the basis of these principles. And indeed, as he became willing to appeal to whatever God there might be, and this was reducing the theological requirements an awful lot. Well, I went on drinking about three weeks, and in no waking hour could I forget the face of my friend, a spectacle of release, as I looked out through a haze of gin into his face as he pitched this synthesis at me. A conversion experience is not for me. I'm an obstinate Vermonter. Besides, I can't, I can't die. People say to me, have faith, and I believe I'd have faith if I could have it, but I can't. But anyhow, I'll go and get dried up. So I went to the hospital. I must have had a little optimism because I came in with a bag of beer. I tried to share it on the subway up. I was waving a bottle. Dear little Dr. Silkworth came out, and I yelled at him, this time, Doc, I got it. He said, I'm afraid you have, Bill. You better get upstairs and go to bed. <laughs> and he looked very sad, for he loved me. So I went upstairs and went to bed. I was there well ahead of the DTs. So In about three days, I was all in the clear. But the more sober I got, the more awful the despair, the depression. So I think it was the morning of the third or the fourth day that my friend Abby showed up in the doorway. And my feeling was ambivalent at once, so I said, well, this is the time he's going to pour on the evangelism. And on the other hand, I was saying, well, he should be looking for a job. Why is he up here at 11 o'clock in the morning to see me? He does practice what he preaches. 
myself Abby knew my prejudices <coughs> so he waited for me to ask him again for that neat little formula through which he had achieved relief and dutifully he went through it you got honest with yourself with another person in confidence you made restitution you helped others and you prayed to god as you understood it i think he might have even used that phrase and without much more ado he was gone no pressure and again i couldn't have trust with god to and again the despair deepened until the last of this prideful obstinacy momentarily was apparently crushed out. And then like a child crying out in the dark, I said, if there is a father, if there is a God, will he show himself? And the place lit up in a great glare of wondrous white light. And then I began to have images in the mind's eye, so to speak. And one came in which I seemed to see myself standing on a mountain. And a great clean wind was blowing. And this blowing at first went around and then it seemed to go through and then the ecstasy redoubled and i found myself exclaiming i am a free man so this is the god of the preacher and little by little the ecstasy subsided and i found myself in a new world of consciousness And one of the early reflections in this world of great peace which stole over me was that all is well with God. I am a part of his cosmos at last. Even evil be in his hands can be transmitted into good. So I had been deflated at depths by a fellow sufferer who used the scientific verdict to deflate me, who used his ability to communicate me through our kinship of common suffering and who made the example of a person who practiced what he preached. So then, for me, here indeed was the salt. Here was the fun. And God knows the light was great. Now, I venture this assertion with the of AA. 
has a spiritual awakening or experience of exactly this character. Certainly it is not for me to differ with theologians, but let me say I prefer to think that there is no essential difference between what happened to me and what happens to each sound AA, excepting the time on. Going back to those psychiatrists who said, we can't understand this tremendous shift in motivation despite all your resources. Well, in my case, the shifts, but the fruits have been the same. And one of the most terrible compulsions and obsessions known has been expelled from us almost wholesale through this happy synthesis of medicine, religion, and our own experience in suffering, in recovery, and sharing the grace of this one with the next. So, fellas, there's my speech. Okay, maybe, uh, you know, this is a curbstone opinion, but here's how I look at it. You go to AA meetings and somebody gets up, and this happens time after time, and he says, now folks, I ain't got the spiritual angle yet. I'm making the group my higher power. They're sober, and I wasn't. So I got a higher power, but I ain't got the spiritual angle the way you fellas did. And as for Bill's thing, well, he looks sane in other respects, but, you know. Um, now, this guy will get up there and tell a story of losing this compulsion and of its being cleared out of him, and it's being motivated in many other ways, just like those psychiatrists said, in a matter of months, or six months, or a year. Now just take one of those fellows and try to imagine all of those shifts in motivation taking place within six months, or within six minutes instead of six months. I think had this happened to that fellow, he too would have had ecstasy. So I think it's Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.